I, I definitely feel that isolation. Talent is equally distributed, but opportunity is not. She told me that I should change my career goal. We're only doing science to take care of our community. You need to feel 100% prepared for sharing your knowledge. I've just never been a road that someone has shown me. If no one do it, it's okay if you want to do it. Well, I had a 2.5 GPA. How do I overcome this? First gen come grade, I was the class below. Higher education is for them. It will empower them. They will have a Present fun time. Present myself they will in a way that I feel that people would be able to really acknowledge who I am and like... We need to retain them. Be you, you know, like stop trying to mold yourself to fit. But it's not just about the science, it's about how we vote, you know, how we treat people who are different to us, you know, how we try and get the best out of people. Those things are really important. When I graduate from our program, I will be the first African-American male to ever have matched and graduated as a surgeon at this institution, as a general surgeon which in 2021 just seems ridiculous to me. What's up, y'all? It's your host, JP Flores, and welcome to From Where Does It Stem? Would you mind giving me an autobiography of who you are and then end it with like a, a fun fact? <laughs> and how many hours do we have for this? <laughs> I mean, maybe get it down to like three minutes or so. Take however long you want. It's, it's three all minutes. Okay. Let me start <laughs> for that. Grew up on a small farm in the Shenandoah Valley. I uh, didn't go to school until the sixth grade because my parents taught me at home because they didn't think the schools were as good as they were. They were right. <laughs> Learned to love learning because that's how my mother taught me. Ended up in public school and got excited about science in a 10th grade chemistry class just taught by a brilliant teacher who made it clear that science was fun. It was not memorizing stuff. It was a detective story. You had these tools, experimental methods, and you could figure out answers. So I was figuring, okay, this must be it. I'm supposed to be a chemist. <laughs> Graduated uh, with um, a chemistry degree from University of Virginia a few years later, went on to Yale to get a PhD in physical chemistry because I figured that's what I was supposed to do. I'd kind of ignored life science all the way along because it seemed messy. And I like the crispness of physics and chemistry. But I discovered in graduate school that there was really cool stuff happening in biology. Recombinant DNA was being invented and molecular biology was starting to happen. And wow, that was actually science that seemed a lot like chemistry. <laughs> so I had this crisis of what do I do and um, decided I'd better just, you know, reinvent myself. And in order to keep all my options open, even though I had never really given serious consideration to it before, I decided to go to medical school. And fortunately, those good people at the University of North Carolina listening yeah. to this very chaotic story uh, decided to offer me a position. So I came to Chapel Hill 1973. Um, I wrote my PhD dissertation during the first year of medical school. I would never recommend that to anybody. <laughs> And fell in love with genetics as the part of medicine that seemed to put it all together for me because it was digital, it was information, it was almost mathematical, and was determined whatever I did, I was going to work on a medical field where genetics would make a difference. And a lot of people said, well, that doesn't seem very likely to happen in your lifetime. <laughs> but fortunately, they were wrong. Um, I wanted to get more training, went back to Yale, I learned how to do molecular biology in the research lab, worked on sickle cell disease, and then got a finally a real job at the University of Michigan as assistant professor, running a research lab, taking care of patients, teaching medical students, 
working on really hard problems of diseases that we had no idea what the cause was, including cystic fibrosis. And in a very intense, difficult, uh, challenging uh, competition collaboration, ended up discovering the cystic fibrosis gene in 1989. It's kind of the first time a gene had actually been discovered without knowing anything about what its protein product would look like. And that's called positional cloning. And it started um, a lot of enthusiasm. And it also started enthusiasm for the Human Genome Project. Mm -hmm which I thought was a really good idea. If you wanna figure out the answers to these thousands of diseases that we know are inherited, you gotta have a reference sequence or you'll never be able to find that needle in the haystack. At least let's define the haystack. So the Genome Project got started. I was a fan, Jim Watson of Watson and Crick was yep. the first director of the Genome Project, but that didn't last very long. He kind of had a way of upsetting and irritating. <laughs> you to come and lead this 15-year project that's going to read out the human DNA instruction book for the first time. And you're like, me? Why me? You know? I, I kind of <laughs> did say, I, I kind of said, I think you're making a big mistake. Uh, I'm really happy here in Ann Arbor, and uh, I don't think of myself as a federal employee, and I've never <laughs> run anything bigger than my lab. But she persisted, and I ultimately relented. And so I came here to NIH, which is where I'm talking to you right now, mm -hmm. in 1993 to lead the Genome Project, which was a wild and crazy roller coaster experience. Because, uh, boy, most of the scientific community was against it. <laughs> you may not know that, but that was the case. And there were a lot of predictions that it was going to be a big flop uh, because it was depending on inventing technology that didn't exist yet. And some people said, you know, it's just going to be so boring. Nobody who's any good would really want to work on this. So you're going to have a lot of mediocre scientists. Fortunately, that was wrong, too. Some of the best and brightest scientists uh, of that sort of period in the 1990s dropped everything to come and join this because it was historic. We were yeah. going to do this and nothing would ever be the same again once you had that reference sequence. And that's true. Nothing has been the same. And we succeeded uh, two years ahead of time and uh, with a budget um, allocation that was less than expected. So everybody loved that. Mm -hmm. And I kept on trying to figure out how to use this because I'm a doc. I want the, uh, not just to be able to write a paper about it, but to see how does it actually help somebody. So we built uh, databases about human variation. What about that 0.1% where we all differ and how does that play out in disease? Meanwhile, I'm working in my own lab on diabetes and on this rare disease called progeria, trying to see how we could use those new developments for those conditions. But I was kind of bored and restless after a while, and I quit uh, in 2008. I said, I'm like done with this. Uh, I'm going to go write a book. I'm going to try to think about <laughs> what I'm going to do when I grow up. Um, and then the President Obama called me. <laughs> in the spring of 2009, shortly after his inauguration, saying, hey, we want you to come back to NIH, not to run the Genome Institute, but to run the whole thing. That's wild. And how can you say no, especially because I had such admiration uh, for Barack Obama. So I came back and from 2009 until about a month ago, uh, my job was overseeing the largest supporter of biomedical research in the world. <laughs> and all that that means. And it's been a wild, wonderful romp through all kinds of science that before I didn't have to think about a lot. I learned about things like neuroscience and immunology in ways <laughs> that I previously had only a sketchy kind of grasp. 
And of course, the last two years have been all about COVID. Yeah, it needed to be. But it's been amazing what NIH has been able to do in that space in terms of vaccines and therapeutics and diagnostics. So that was more than three minutes, but you know, it's been a long ride. So <laughs> that was honestly perfect. I, I think that's great. And there's so many things that I want to touch on here. Like, for example, your first point was you grew up on a small farm in the Shenandoah Valley, and now you are in the office of the director of the NIH. How, how does that feel? Can, can you walk me through that? Did you ever imagine that this would be a possibility? Oh, good heavens, no, uh, absolutely <laughs> not. When I was growing up on the farm, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I was mostly interested in music yeah. and in literature and particularly in theater. My father was a drama professor. My mother was a playwright. Huh. So by the time I was five years old, it was like, okay, uh, it's your turn. You're getting on stage and you're going to do this role. And I loved that. That was fantastic. And I kind of thought of myself as a humanities guy until that fateful day in that chemistry class where I realized there is something really interesting <laughs> here that I want to do even more than I want to do music and theater. So, uh, yeah, it, to the idea, if you'd said to me when I was 10 years old, someday you're going to be a government employee running um, a $42 billion a year operation, I would have said, you have just lost your mind. Uh, that yeah. was not even anywhere on the list of possibilities in my head. Yeah, that's so funny. Yeah. And before I move on, I want to touch uh, upon your time at UNC. What are your fondest memories at UNC, right? Like, me and my friends talk about it all the time. You're a UNC alum. In fact, one of my good friends, Brian Garal, he's in the uh, genetics and molecular biology PhD program here. And he was like, if he ever comes visit, tell him I'll cook him a dinner. We'll invite him over. Just, just <laughs> please, just please, just, just let me know. <laughs> so yeah, what were your fondest memories here? And I loved it. Uh, and I stayed there and did my medical residency and I was chief resident. Uh, so I had spent eight years. Initially, I lived out on Man's Chapel Road, one of those little developments. Oh. Uh, by then, I was married and had a little kid. Pretty soon, I had two little kids. Uh, <laughs> and then moved into Hillsborough Road in Carborough, which was a wonderful place to be as well. That's where I'm at right now. Yeah, yeah, okay. Right now. <laughs> I rode my bike every day uh, to the hospital uh, to get a little bit of exercise in between. It was just such a rich environment, uh, a wonderfully inspiring people. Uh, my inspiration about going into genetics was very much driven by a pediatrician named Neil Kirkman who's hmm. just died a, a few months ago, a very austere, somewhat unapproachable person. But <laughs> he was so into explaining how single letter misspellings in, out of 3 billion uh, could cause significant disease and what we need to know about it. And he brought patients to class, which wow. for first-year medical students didn't happen that often. And that totally hooked me. It was just the access you had there uh, to professors. They were always glad to talk to you. Yeah. And of course, the other thing that happened to me in Chapel Hill was going from being an atheist uh, to becoming a Christian. Uh, so that mm -hmm. was a big unexpected change also. Mm -hmm. And very much by my experience as a third year medical student, having to deal with questions about life and death and realizing I wasn't really very prepared to wrestle with that without really digging more deeply. And I thought I would beef up my atheism and to my surprise, ended up becoming a Christian instead. Wow. Yeah, that's really interesting. <laughs> so, so being a medical student prompted that, huh? That's It forced a consideration of th things that I had put aside. I mean, how many people uh, when they're, you know, 21, 22 years old, you think you're going to live forever. You're probably not right. spending a lot of time thinking about big questions of life and death or even questions like, why am I here? Because you're just trying to push it forward. 
And so I just put that off. Uh, it was convenient uh, to be an atheist because then I didn't have to think about it and I didn't have to feel responsible to anybody other than myself. Um, but I hadn't really given any serious consideration to those big questions about, is there a God and what's the evidence for and against until sitting at the bedside of people who are dying yeah. in the wards of North Carolina Memorial Hospital, I imagine what would that be like if that was me? Right. Would I get to that point and think to myself, man, I didn't really spend any time on thinking about what this all means. Maybe I'd better do that now. Yeah, I feel like I'm in the same boat too. And I have these discussions with a lot of my friends. So I, yeah, this is something that I really want to look into. And I'm really glad you brought that up because this has been, this has been on my mind for a long time being in the school of medicine, you know, so. Yeah. yeah well, really what cool. helped me a lot was talking to some of the professors who I knew had wrestled with these issues and hearing how they had traveled through uh, the, the doubts and the uncertainties. And many of them remained there. And some of them had really come to a joyful kind of conclusion. And then there was a pastor down the road from me on Hillsborough Road. Um, <laughs> it's the pastor at the uh, Carborough Methodist Church. Okay. And I didn't know him, but I went and knocked on his door and um, asked a lot of blasphemous questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's and how you he, get started, right? <laughs> yes, he was very tolerant. <laughs> but he gave me this book. And if you want something to really uh, sort of get you started, uh, it would be a good place to start. Because it was written by an Oxford professor who had traveled the same road uh, from atheism to ultimately deciding belief was more rational. It's a very rational sort of argument. And the book's Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And uh, even though that was written actually during World War II, uh, it remains today, I think, the most coherent, really compelling discussion of the pros and cons of whether you should believe or not. Wow. Yeah. No, I'm sold. I'm definitely just going to order that book now. I might look for it today. I mean, <laughs> I'm working from home. So yeah. So if you're ever in Chapel Hill, just let us know. We'd, we'd be down to host you and uh, <laughs> treat you to some dinner. Um, I would love that. And of course, since my kids grew up there, they kind of feel affectionate about my daughter who ends up going uh, to UNC undergrad. She ends up going to UNC medical school. <clears throat> she ends up doing <laughs> residency and then nephrology fellowship at the North Carolina Moore Hospital. And she's now in practice in Wilmington, North Carolina. So I have reasons to travel to the state. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Okay, so let's reel it back in and get down to the nitty gritty. Yeah. Um, would you mind painting a picture of who Francis Collins is, right? So you mentioned you were raised in a small farm in, in Shenandoah, but how were you raised and what were your upbringings like? Aside from the science, like what was Francis Collins doing in this farm early on in his life? <laughs> it was hard work, let me tell you. Yeah. Anybody who has this sort of uh, dewy-eyed idea about, oh, the pastoral environment, it must be so hard. <laughs> no, it is damn hard work, especially in the summertime. There's animals to take care of. Uh, there are uh, the inevitable problems with things that are going wrong in the barn or things in the fields that need to be addressed. And at the same time, um, my parents running a summer theater, <laughs> which is yeah. the other thing they were doing, took a lot of involvement as well. But I loved it. I never thought there was anything different. I kind of missed the social interactions. I mean, my only playmate was my brother, who was like a year and a half older than me. And being siblings, uh, sometimes we played well together. And most of the time, we tried to kill each other. Classic siblings. Uh, so it was a bit of an odd upbringing. But then we moved in town uh, to be with my grandmother, who'd had a stroke. And then I became more of a social uh, person beginning yeah. in about the sixth grade. So I think I got the best of both worlds. My mother's teaching style, which is what I learned so much from, was um, utterly unstructured. 
Huh. I mean, we would wake up in the morning and um, there would be a co conversation with her and my brother and me. Okay, what's interesting today? <laughs> let's, okay, let's do math. And let's just keep doing it until we hit a roadblock of some sort. And then we'll stop and say, okay, what else was interesting today? Oh, let's do history for a while. Huh. Uh, and so do you think this unstructured kind of format helped you be oh, where you're at in science? Because that's kind of what science is, right? You're branching off of different ideas. It is. And it taught, most importantly, it taught me to love the experience of learning something new. And I carry that with me now. Yeah. I, I always... <laughs> get headed, faced up with things that I don't know enough about. And there's a little part of me that goes, oh, my God, am I going to have to learn this? But most of me is going, yeah, here's something <laughs> else I can try to get my head around that I haven't had the chance yet. And now I'm going to do that. And that comes from my mom. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, cool. So I'm going to take a little left turn. Okay. okay. So you were once in my position, right, as a student choosing to embark in a career in science. What was the piece of advice you received in your career that really, you know, did it for you, right? You could have got this in elementary school, high school, college, grad school. You can share one piece of advice or all of them if you'd like. But what pieces of advice can, can we take as grad students, as, as just a student in science? Oh, boy. I think I got a lot of things along the way. I have to sort of pick one. <laughs> ah. I think it was, if you're going to pick a research problem that you're going to throw yourself into, make sure it's something you really care about. Mm -hmm. uh, ideally, make sure it's a problem that's really important. Right. An awful lot of research, uh, you know this, JP, an awful lot of research is kind of the next obvious derivative next step that somebody needs to do because mm -hmm. it's going to build knowledge but it's gonna have a fairly predictable outcome. You just sort of need to do it and then write the paper and get it out there. <laughs> My lab still does a lot of that too. But if <laughs> you're gonna be able to pick something that's gonna be your focus, maybe for a few years, you want it to be something that really matters. And that usually means it's gonna be a little risky <laughs> or somebody else would already done it. Right. So. I got that advice uh, along the way, maybe particularly from my postdoc advisor, Sherman Weissman, who at Yale, who's still very active in the lab at some 82 or something like that. <laughs> uh, and Sherman was an interesting mentor because he was probably the smartest man I ever met in my life. And he was just about the worst communicator. <laughs> so half the time I had no idea what Sherman was talking about. And he would have 10 ideas a day. And I'd have to try to figure out which of those was I really supposed to follow up on. <laughs> uh, but he did have this sort of clear principle like, okay, you're in my lab. You're going to be here maybe for three years. Don't waste your time doing something obvious. Something that's hard, but if it works, you've really made a contribution. Well, I carry that with me. And when I got to Michigan, when I could decide myself, decided to tackle really hard problems like finding the cause of cystic fibrosis. <laughs> and I'm glad I did, even though it was incredibly scary. Uh, it was high risk. I didn't publish a single paper in my first three years as an assistant professor. I was sure I was failing, but it's what it takes if you're going to tackle something that's really a little out of reach. So yeah, that's my, my point. Make your choice of project, when you get the chance to do so, sometimes it's other people telling you, right. <laughs> when it's your decision, choose something you really care about. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And it also is a great segue for my next question. So the research question, very important. Mm 
But what about the lab environment and your mentor, right? Because that is a huge, huge um, proponent here. For example, I have to choose my lab, my home lab in April. Um, I interview prospective students for my undergrad institution, Occidental, and they're trying to find the right place. They're trying to find the right mentors. They're trying to find, you know, the right questions to ask. So what are your thoughts on finding a good mentor? What advice can you kind of pass on to us about finding that great environment? That's really important. So thinking back to my time at UNC, mm-hmm. I, I was fortunate to get to know John Parker, um, mm-hmm. uh, just a legendary guy who had it all. He was a, the most exquisitely insightful clinical physician I ever worked with. He would find things doing a f- patient exam that all the interns had missed. <laughs> But he also ran a really competitive research lab on red cell biology. He was exquisitely good at science. He had it both. And he was uh, just a wonderful, warm, and generous guy. And I attached myself to him. (laughs) That's a message, maybe. Don't be shy when you see somebody like that around you to ask them, will you be my mentor? Uh, Will you help me find my way through here? I think sometimes as a trainee, you're a little reluctant to do that. You think, oh, these people are so busy. Let me tell you, the professors love it when somebody (laughs) asks uh, for them to be a mentor, because that says, oh, my opinion must apparently have some value here. And and we all, as we get further along in our career, get more pleasure out of the success of our trainees than about our own. And same with mentees. So don't be shy. Now, I will tell you, I took advantage of what was a network that unfortunately is not available so easily uh, to people from untraditional backgrounds. I was this white kid and I had all these people around me who were quite ready to sort of make themselves available if I was looking for advice. And I know that is not so easy uh, for everybody else. And that's something we need to fix because mentoring is so critical. John Parker not only mentored me all the way through uh, my um, uh, medical school and my residency, he came to visit me after that at Yale when I was doing my uh, genetics fellowship and I was hitting a rough spot and was wondering if I was in the right place. And he wanted to be sure to come alongside and hear what it was all about, give some advice. That was priceless. Uh, yeah. Probably the best mentor I could have ever had. Gene Oringer, who you might or might not know, yep. uh, was another one. I wrote my first clinical paper with Gene about sickle cell disease. Oh, wow. And Gene was also this wonderfully thoughtful guy. And mentors are for life. Once you have one, stick it at, stick with them because they're gonna they're gonna be able to help you across many future hurdles that you may not even know are coming. Definitely. So so in summary, what do you think constitutes a good mentor? I think a mentor needs to be uh, somebody who is really a good listener, mm-hmm. has some pretty broad experience, including has failed a few times, <laughs> um, is able to sort of see the whole landscape of research opportunities if you're struggling a little bit about where you fit in. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't hurt if they're kind of connected too. Uh, if it's like, okay, you need to set up a collaboration with somebody you've never met. Maybe your mentor can help that happen because they're likely to get their phone calls returned. <laughs> yep. I see. All right. So let's fast forward in time. And let's say I did join my lab. I'm constantly stressed out about school and life as a first year PhD student. <laughs> you manage the human genome project and initiative with over what 2,400 scientists. Um, you've spearheaded the NIH in a global pandemic. 
we are not alike. In some ways we are, I guess. <laughs> but nonetheless, how have you managed to stay calm and manage your stress? Like, what goes on in your routine that helps you that helps you do this? Like, maybe we can take a page out of your book and, and uh, mm. follow your lead. I'll try. And yeah, the stress has been pretty unremitting, especially during COVID. Uh, but even before that, trying to manage uh, this incredibly large, complicated organization where there's always things that aren't going quite the way you want them to has been pretty stressful. I think we all need ways uh, to get outside of the crisis of the day and get it into perspective. That's how I think stress management is supposed to work because you can get so wound up uh, with something that just happened, some news you got or some email that was like distressing that you kind of lose uh, the whole rest of what's happening. Got to have some techniques to pull yourself out of that. Um, for me, and one of the ways that I guess as a manager of a big, complicated organization, surrounding myself with other incredibly capable people who are also uh, pretty mature and capable themselves uh, of managing things when they don't go right, and who are also turned loose to tell me when I'm about to make a mistake, because uh, otherwise, why are they there? So creating an environment around you of a team that really has uh, the skills uh, to handle almost anything and also who really care about each other uh, so yeah. that your stress is not just yours. <laughs> it's kind of like something you all can talk about together and something about that really makes it easier. But personally, I'm fortunate to have the most amazing wife that anybody has ever had in the entire <laughs> history of planet Earth. Uh, my <laughs> wife, Diane, is a genetic counselor, so she's wow. well acquainted with the scientific community, but also one of the most upbeat, problem-solving, generous-hearted people that you could imagine. And so she's an incredible sounding board when I'm feeling like, I don't know how I'm gonna deal with this one. <laughs> okay, let's talk it through. My faith is a critical part uh, of the foundation for not getting all wound around the axle when things aren't going right. And I try not to let that faith connection uh, get stale, although sometimes it does get pushed by all of the other events. But I'm trying every morning to start the day uh, with prayer and reading some of the Bible in order to get myself on the right path. Uh, and that really does help as kind of an anchor for whatever the day is going to throw at me. And then I need a few other kind of outlets um, I'm a bit of an exercise nut. Um, I do CrossFit three times a week, which pretty much drives me into a puddle on the floor at the end of the <laughs> hour. I did that this morning. Oh, my God. Uh, I am and my wife and I are big uh, into biking on the weekends when it's not 20 degrees. Okay. <laughs> and music is a, a great outlet for me, both uh, piano and guitar. I love it when we can do that as a band. I'm in a band. and. Uh, What's it called? Uh, the Affordable Rock and Roll Act. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> They're all scientists, and some are like me, sort of uh, senior investigators, and some of them are postbacks. And everything in between. And, you know, we're pretty good, actually. Yeah, that's so and, cool. and when, you, when you get this rock and roll band going together, and especially if we get invited to play for a dance, usually for some scientific convention, and everybody's out on the floor dancing, and we're hitting our groove, it's like, oh, this is <laughs> really amazing experience. Yeah. So, yeah, all of that, well, those are outlets. And then there's the Harley. I do have to admit, yes, there is the Harley. Yeah which is another thing on a nice day, I get on the motorcycle, I go find a country road somewhere 
and you feel like you have really arrived in a great spot for an hour or so. <laughs> I think it's amazing how you can just balance all of that. Like I'm well, trying to do balance. that right now. And it's tough. <laughs> I don't know if you'd call it balance or not. Those are opportunities. I wouldn't necessarily say I've got them yeah. in the right space, but at least they exist. And every one of them has been helpful to me. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really good advice to hear, Dr. Collins. Okay, so we took our left turn earlier. Now we're going to take our right turn. Okay. Uh, what are your thoughts on how we can make STEM, uh, science, biology, the biomedical sciences, more diverse and more inclusive? Right? We're facing a retention problem in STEM right now with racial disparities, gender gaps, uh, feelings of isolation from um, historically underrepresented students, and the list goes on. There's even data out there to support it. So how do you think we can um, diversify STEM and implement full inclusion initiatives that better support and empower students like me? Sorry, that's kind of a mouthful, but. <laughs> no, but JP, this is a really important set of questions. And I will tell you, it's been a passion of mine uh, when I was NIH director for those 12 years about what we can do about this. Because our workforce does not look like our country and we are missing out on all kinds of opportunities for amazing discoveries and productivity. We know that diversity equates to productivity. This isn't just a nice thing to do. Yeah. Uh, we are impeding scientific progress because of lack of diversity in our workforce. And there are all kinds of reasons for that, but they do have potential solutions. And so NIH has actually been uh, for the last seven years uh, pushing forward some fairly unprecedented efforts to try to change this. But I guess we have to recognize it took centuries, maybe about four of them, uh, to be in the place where we are in terms of inequities and structural racism. And we it's going to be a hard push uh, to try to fix that quickly, but we're determined. So yeah, I think among those things are we, we have to give K through 12 students a better opportunity to experience why science is so much fun. Even if you're coming from a family or a society where you haven't got a lot of role models, mm -hmm. uh, this ought to be something that could be uh, uh, a, a draw for you because of its intrinsic appeal. So we do have a, a program that's trying to push that. We are a little impeded there because Congress doesn't give us uh, the authority for K through 12 science education. The only way we can justify it is if we say, we're actually trying to create scientists who are gonna do this for a career. Yeah. So we kind of do that with a program called SEPA. And I think that has, you can see anecdotal stories, but I want more than anecdotes. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, Scientists, give us data. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When you look at undergraduates, there we have a lot that we can do. There's a program called BUILD. We have come up with funds uh, for a couple dozen institutions who have a heavy representation of students from traditionally underrepresented groups. And they are given the opportunity by linking up uh, with other institutions that are science heavy mm -hmm. uh, for those students to really have a chance for a real experience in research. Because JP, I think the thing that turns people around is not that they got an exciting lecture. <laughs> they got a chance to do science mm -hmm. themselves, uh, primary research with a mentor there at your elbow. And then you're like hooked. Yep. But if you never get that experience, uh, how would you ever decide to do this? So BUILD has really made a difference there. We're seeing now out as a result of that, uh, a lot more applications uh, for graduate school uh, coming out of those schools, even though it's only been around now for about four years. So it's a little early to tell. 
And if you look at what's happened in terms of doctoral degrees mm -hmm. uh, for African-Americans, uh, for Latinos, Latinas, uh, for Native Americans, it's not going up as steeply as it should, but it is going up. And that is encouraging. What is not so encouraging is you're not seeing those doctoral degrees translate into tenure track faculty positions. That is still very limited in terms of progress. And we need to get it all the way there. Mm -hmm. So we have another program about that. <laughs> We've been piloting this one here at NIH, uh, something I started three years ago, is instead of recruiting one minority investigator at a time, which is usually what happens, and then they land there and they look around and go, boy, there's nobody here who looks a bit like me. And yeah. Nobody here has had my experience. Let's recruit a cohort. So every year at NIH, we've recruited 10 to 12 tenure track mm -hmm. investigators who have a deep commitment to diversity. We can't we have to be a little careful so we don't get in trouble with the Supreme Court, but we can do this. <laughs> and now the third group is here. And this has really made a difference. Talk to those people. They feel like, yeah, this place cares about me. Yeah. <laughs> they brought me in with these other folks. They give us a lot of mentoring. They make sure that when we hit that rough spot, which you always will during a tenure track, that there's somebody there who's going to be able to help you past it. I like this so much that we just decided last year that we would do this as a program for all of the institutions around the country that we support. But they have to put skin in the game, too. So yeah. we say... Here's some money. <laughs> if you want to be part of this program, it's called FIRST. Mm -hmm. uh, send us your application about how you're going to do it, but you're going to have to match the funds. Mm -hmm. And let's see. And we got overwhelmed with that. Yeah, that was awesome. Overwhelmed. I can't remember. I think we only were able to give six or seven, and we probably had 100 applications. Yeah. And it's a good start. And we'll keep doing that. Maybe that's going to be the difference to try to get past what is otherwise an obstacle that seems to drive a lot of people away. They're just like, no, this community is not welcoming to me. Why should I be here? So I'm, that's a lot of stuff, JP, but I hope you know, this is a really high priority at NIH. We have this program called Unite, uh, which if you go back and read about it and sell this paper we published last summer, aims to try to tackle the whole issue of structural racism in biomedical research. And a lot of it is workforce, and a lot of it is health disparities and health inequities. And a lot of it is just plain discrimination that hasn't been addressed uh, in a straightforward way like it should be. And we have 100 people at NIH who are deeply into this at various levels driving this agenda. And uh, it's quite exciting to see that. And I will tell you, a lot of this got really pushed into a much more vigorous space after the terrible, tragic killing of George Floyd. That was just a wake-up call for a lot of people who thought, oh, we're doing okay. No, we are not doing okay. Yeah. We've got a long way to go. Let's admit it and let's try to do something about it. Yeah, most definitely. I, I think that was a phenomenal answer and like, my heart's fluttering a little bit because that was that's, <laughs> that's, I love hearing that from you. <laughs> but I do want to touch on, on um, the point of retention. The way I see this is it's kind of like a fountain, right? Water's entering in, but then water is coming up and out and it's falling back into the where it originally came from, mm. right? So- this issue of retention, other than money, what else do you think it'll take to have people stay there? So you talked about money, you talked about um, pairing them up with a mentor, but what do those mentors need to like do? Like what, what will make them an effective mentor for these people? Yeah, you're right. It doesn't work if the mentor doesn't really appreciate uh, what people are going through. So uh, again, I'll come back to this 
pilot program we're doing here because the whole idea is not just to recruit yeah. these 10 or 12 tenure track people, but to have them succeed, for them to yeah. be retained, for them to end up as senior investigators and maybe uh, uh, scientific directors or uh, even NIH directors. That's that's <laughs> here. Let's yeah. let's fix that issue. So the mentors that we have for that program are generally people who have themselves had this experience of trying yeah. to make it in a community that doesn't look like them and isn't always that welcoming and may it sometimes even um, have offensive comments uh, to throw at them. So the mentors can kind of really get inside the heads uh, of these tenure track folks who are hitting obstacles. And some of those obstacles are the social environment. Sometimes it's about how do you build a collaboration? Again, like I said earlier, if nobody yeah, yeah. calls, they don't know who you are. Uh, some of it is just, you know, science is hard. <laughs> and Definitely. maybe the first project you threw yourself into as a tenure track was a bust. <laughs> how do you pick yourself back up again, as opposed to going, well, I guess I wasn't supposed to do this. Right. I can't tell you how many times in my career I had close calls like that because yes. a failure of an experiment or an experimental approach feels like a personal failure. Uh, I, I would take those very hard and I'd be almost ready to quit. And usually there'd be a mentor that go now they're there. This yep. has happened to all of us. Pick yourself up, figure out what you could learn from this. Every failure has a lesson and then start into a direction and you'll probably end up being better for this. Okay. All right. But if I hadn't <laughs> had somebody like that uh, to, to lean on, Sometimes you get pretty down in the dumps about this. And there are other things you could do uh, than put yourself through an experience that seems like torture at times. So people people need that kind of encouragement. Yeah. Yeah. These past couple of minutes really got me thinking about my current support system, you know, my family and my, my friends here at UNC and just how much you know, I appreciate them and I'm, I'm grateful for them. So yeah, thank you for reminding me of that. And I hope you get good mentoring there too. I know two of the people that you're interacting with are my former postdocs, <laughs> Karen Mulkey and Samir Kalata. So um, yep. I, I hope they're treating you well. And they're both <laughs> they fantastic are. people. <laughs> yes, they are amazing. Yeah, Samir is my first year group leader and he's he's been phenomenal. And I've had some conversations with Karen and she's been great, super helpful. <laughs> yeah, so I have... Um, Two final questions before I move into some fun questions. Um, the first one's kind of like a self-reflection. How does it feel to be at the at this point uh, in your career in STEM? Like, can you just talk about that for a little bit? How are you feeling? Like, you're moving out of your office. I see that the bookshelf behind you is empty now. Like, yeah, you 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 have caught me trying to move twelve years of stuff <laughs> yeah. out of the director's office uh, into my lab office, which is sort of a, a closet. <laughs> so there's not a lot of room over there. So I'm having to do a lot of throwing stuff out. Um, JP, I just feel like I've been incredibly fortunate mm -hmm. uh, that all these doors uh, opened for me along the way that I hadn't planned on, and I had the chance after some reflection and a little bit of terror uh, to walk through and be part of something uh, that was just an amazing scientific adventure, sequencing the human genome for the first time with these amazing 2,400 scientists in six countries who all agreed, we're just going to do this and we're not going to worry too much about who gets the credit and we're going to give all the data away, which yeah. we did every 24 hours. And that started a whole new view about what you're supposed to do about data access. 
and have been asked by Barack Obama to serve as the NIH director and have a chance to work with him, to have moments in the Oval Office, just him and me talking about science. I will never forget that. And he was a brilliant visionary. And a couple of the things that I got to do as NIH director really only happened because he was willing to support them. This yeah. big new initiative on the brain, really figuring out how the brain works. Very complicated, very ambitious, very expensive. And uh, Obama was totally behind it. And this big program we have right now, asking a million Americans uh, to join us in this long-term prospective cohort study called All of Us. Mm -hmm. By the way, if anybody listening hasn't yet joined all of us, it's not <laughs> joinallofus.org and you can find out <laughs> how you can be part of this. This is going to change everything in terms of how we understand how genes and environment interact together to cause illness or to allow people to stay healthy with a million people making their electronic health records available, walking around with all kinds of wearable sensors and uh, all kinds of data and their complete genome sequences, we're gonna learn stuff. And <laughs> that was a dream I had going back probably 15 years and it really was possible for it to happen. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I've just been so fortunate. So I, you know, if nothing else happens, if I crash my motorcycle this weekend, nobody would say Not this guy me. was, you know, he was still a promise for the future. Well, I hope I still am, but I've had this <laughs> incredible opportunity. Uh, to be part of things that were really remarkably uh, joyful experiences. And now I'm moving in back into the lab, having a chance to get closer to what my lab is doing in diabetes epigenomics and uh, a gene editing cure for this rare disease progeria, which we hope to have in clinical trials in about a year. And that's going to be a lot of fun to get more deeply engaged in what admittedly I had had to be a little bit at arm's length from because of running NIH. But I'm also um, trying to figure out what else to do when I grow up, uh, JP. When you grow up. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> one thing I am pretty passionate about is if I've got any credibility here that I could use, I would like to use it to try to argue for how important it is that scientific evidence is taken seriously in matters of health. It's not been pretty uh, to see the way in which in the last couple of years, and especially the last six months, uh, how science and all of the evidence that has been generated there to save lives has somehow been overtaken uh, by loud voices that are spreading conspiracies and misinformation, sometimes intentionally. And the fact that 100,000 people in the United States have died unnecessarily because they were somehow convinced that they didn't need a vaccine and then they died, I didn't dream that would be possible. And if I've got some way with some kind of a voice here to yep. speak about that, probably in a book, then I'm ready to do that. <laughs> yes. Yes. That, that's, it's just been so amazing to interview you and, and just hear about your perspectives and, and your stories. And it's, it's making me so excited for not just my career, but like everyone I've encountered here at UNC's career, all my friends and, and all the undergrads I've interacted with. I'm super excited for, for the future of science. Um, oh, yeah. Let me just say. We are into the most amazing period that the planet has ever seen as far as biomedical research. You are a lucky guy <laughs> to be hitting your stride at the point of this exponential increase in our knowledge about how life works and how disease happens. It's going to be just amazing. Yeah, it's going to be so fun. Yeah, <laughs> we just need to remember that when we're struggling during our homework, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. And do, yeah, put it up on your wall. You're lucky to be working in this field. Yeah. 
Yeah. All right. So you ready to go into some fun questions now? Sure. Let's do that. All right. Cool. Not that this wasn't fun already, but yeah. <laughs> exactly. All right. So first one, what is your favorite song right now and why? <laughs> uh, you know, I had to do an NPR interview um, with Rachel Martin just yep. a few days ago. And to my surprise, at the end of it, she said, hey, I hear you play the guitar. Do you have a song for us? That <laughs> current occasion? So that song's in my head now because uh, it's both hopeful and it's recognizing that we're in a tough time. <laughs> so it's a song written during the Civil War. Okay called How Can I Keep From Singing? Hmm. Uh, the verses are all about, boy, life is tough right now. Imagine writing this in 1864. Yeah. And yet at the refrain at the end of each verse is, nonetheless, how can I keep from singing? Because I have hope. That's awesome. That's, that's, <laughs> that's great. So you said some things about um, things you do outside of science. Do you have a favorite thing to do outside of science? Like your favorite thing ever. Favorite thing of all, ah, boy, I guess it would probably be the Harley, <laughs> all right. um, you know, on a pretty uh, spring day um, when it's a little bit warm and um, it's a country road with a lot of curves. Um, yeah, that would be hard to beat. Yeah, I can imagine you already like riding off into the sunset. <laughs> yeah. All right. Favorite food or place to eat and why? Oh, I'm a sushi fan. Yeah. Yeah. And we've got a fantastic sushi place that's like a half block from my house. So if there's uh, a need for a takeout, I'm there. <laughs> uh, favorite color? Um, I guess I'm a blue guy and I have been <laughs> since I was a kid. And that's not a political statement. <laughs> All right. Favorite color to wear? Oh, I'm such a fashion <laughs> guy. <laughs> Um, I guess uh, if you ask my wife, she would say, well, what do you usually wear? Black, <laughs> so, black t-shirt, black jeans, black shoes. Yeah. Okay. Um, did you have a celebrity crush growing up? Oh, celebrity crush. Well, it didn't. Yeah, I guess. Um, hmm. How far back do I want to go? Here? Ah. <laughs> hmm. 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 uh, you know, I was into folk music, um, so um, most of the things I was really attached to were folk musicians, uh, some of whom you've probably never heard of. And can I pick one out? Well, going all the way back to Patsy Cline, I guess, yeah, Patsy Cline. Okay, Patsy Cline, good one. Yeah, do you, do you have a, what do you, what kind of guitar do you play? Martin? Um, oh, I do have a, I have a Martin D35, but the one I play most of the time is a Husson Dalton. Oh, acoustic what? six string Hudson Dalton is a small luthier in my hometown uh, in the Shenandoah Valley huh. and I got to design this one uh, wow. when I stepped down from running the genome project uh, they took up a little collection and gave enough money for me to design this uh, so it is Adirondack spruce on the top and it has a neck that's a little wider than a usual acoustic six string because I have big hands and it's easier to keep the strings separated that way and it has a double helix in mother of pearl on the fretboard. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> I got to hear you play sometime. That's, that's, that's so cool. Yeah. Okay. Two, two final down. questions. Two final questions. Uh, if we, if we went out for a night in the town and just so happened to stumble into a karaoke bar and you had no choice, but to partake, what song are you singing? <laughs> okay. Let me think about that a minute. Uh, 
You know, it's one that I do with a band. And every time I do it, I get a little choked up. <laughs> uh, it's a song called Don't Give Up On Me. Um, it's it's Andy Grammer. It's a yep. song. It was featured in that very tear-jerking movie about the two kids with cystic fibrosis called Five Feet Apart. Yep. Seen it. Uh, but it is powerful. And it um, also was the favorite song of a young man uh, who I helped take care of here at NIH who had kidney cancer and who sadly ultimately lost his battle. And so it's a song I sang at his funeral, which was not easy to do. So of, of all the current songs I can think of, that's my favorite, although I might get choked up if we were doing that yeah. in a karaoke. Yeah, I don't think I can I can listen to that song the same way anymore. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it'll get to you. Yeah. All right, last one, ready? Um, if we were at a wedding, what song would get you out on the dance floor? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, gosh, almost anything. <laughs> I'm not a good dancer, but I'm an enthusiastic dancer. Uh, That's all that matters. <laughs> you know, there's, there's always these anthems that will, will get you out there no matter what. Uh, Don't Stop Believing would do it. Journey, yep. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Cool. And I, I play the keyboard part on that for the band, too, so I love that keyboard part. And oh, wow. Key, key of E major, and you got these amazing chords. Oh, yeah. How many instruments do you play? Guitar, just, piano? Just guitar and piano. Yeah, same, same, same. yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, Dr. Collins, that that was all of my questions for today. I hope you had fun. And <laughs> I did. And I hope it was of some use in terms of you asked great questions, JP. We covered a lot of ground here in this uh, time that we had. And uh, I have no idea who was listening or whether they found this useful or not, but I sure hope so, maybe somewhere in there. And I just want to encourage you, you are in a challenging space there, uh, getting started in this graduate program, trying to figure out which lab you want to land in, doing these rotations, and got to be lots of um, uncertainties there. Uh, courses probably, especially with COVID, <laughs> that are maybe a little less ideal in terms of the way they're presented. But you've got such a future ahead of you, and so do all the other folks uh, that are in your space. Like I said earlier, this is the best time to be doing what you're doing. So when you're feeling like it's all closing in on you, step back from that and realize that the scientific experiments that you're going to do in the course of your career are just going to be amazing. And that's like, okay, contributing to knowledge for all time. And what could be better than that? Yep. Thank you so much. I really needed that. Yeah, I mean, it's been a tough week. <laughs> oh, well, I hope it gets better. Let me know how it goes. And uh, yeah, if uh, if those UNC mentors of you aren't treating you right, I'll talk to them. Okay? <laughs> Will do. Thank you so much. All right. Hope you have a great day. You too.